Zechariah 2. And there are some times that you read a text at the beginning of the week that you're going to preach on, and you kind of know right away what you're going to say. This was not one of those weeks. But as we read this text and as we explore it together, I think we'll find it has a really powerful and enduring message for God's people. Zechariah 2 for us today. Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? He answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, O Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. After he has honored me and has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, For whoever touches you touches the apple of my eye. I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. This is God's perfect word for us today. Well, Thomas Jefferson, who you may know from early American history, spent about 54 years of his life building his house at Monticello. And the picture you see up there is Jefferson's house. It's also on the back of the nickel, so it might look a little bit familiar. Now, Jefferson was just an amateur architect and builder, but he had a vision. He had a dream of what he wanted this house in America to look at. And he worked and he worked and he worked at it for decades. And some things about the house were just amazing Some were not quite so amazing. You can't see it in this picture, but Jefferson built the house on top of a high hill. So it had great visibility and it had great views out. But it also was the highest thing for quite a ways around. So there was always this worry that lightning was going to strike. And what's more, since water runs downhill, and this was at the top of the hill, Jefferson's servants had to spend time year after year after year hauling water up the hill. And Jefferson built the house three stories tall, which looked really nice, but he thought staircases were a waste of space. So in that whole house, there are only two staircases, and they are each about two feet wide, maybe this wide. So you can imagine how much fun it was to go up and down. And when Jefferson had visitors, they actually had to set up a winch outside the house and haul their luggage up with ropes and then swing it in through the guest bedroom windows. You can imagine how much fun it was to visit Jefferson's house. One of the most remarkable features of the house is that dome you can see on the top. And Jefferson had to do an incredible amount of calculus to get all of that to work and to stay upright. It's a work of genius. But because he only put two little staircases in the house and he forgot to put any kind of heating in that room, 
No one ever went there. The most beautiful room in the house, and it got turned into an area for storage. And Jefferson was always coming up with new schemes, so he'd always be putting up a new part of the home and tearing down an old one. And he really didn't believe in maintenance, so he'd be building new parts on the house while other parts were pretty much falling over. Decades after he started building, visitors would still complain that they had to walk through muck and mud and they had to deal with all kinds of construction debris whenever they visited. Jefferson had this great and beautiful building project in mind, but over the years, a lot of people had pretty serious questions about whether this was really a good idea whether this whole thing was going to work out or not. Now, at the time of Zechariah, God's people were embarking on an ambitious building project, but there were some pretty serious questions about how that was going to work out. Many years before, Jerusalem had been pretty much destroyed, and most of the people had been carried off in exile to Babylon. Things had stayed that way for decades and decades. But now people were beginning to come back and to rebuild this city. It was an exciting time. There was a lot of hope for new beginnings. But there was also a lot of anxiety and uncertainty. They had fresh memories of exile. The scars, the wounds of destruction and captivity were pretty fresh. They had limited people and not really very many resources. And they wondered as they set out to rebuild this city whether God had given up on his people and left them alone for good. So when the young man in that vision set out to measure the walls of Jerusalem, that was a pretty bold, pretty hopeful move. He probably wasn't going to measure the dimensions of a city that already existed. He was surveying for the very beginning of a building project. He's going to measure out where the buildings and where the walls will go that they hope, that they pray, will be built someday. He's taking a big step of faith, hoping that the rebuilding project will go forward. But at the time, you'd have to wonder if this was an act of true faith or just an act of utter foolishness. Could that city, could Jerusalem really be rebuilt or was it a waste of time and effort to try? And at the beginning of this vision, as the man is about to measure where the new city walls will be, an angel is sent to tell him, stop! Don't measure for the walls of the city because the city won't have walls. Jerusalem will be a city without walls. Now, for us hearing that today, that doesn't really mean much of anything. The actual words there, though, would have been shocking to that young man. The actual words there are that Jerusalem will be an unwalled village. Jerusalem will be an unwalled village. One of my cousins got married a number of years ago in a little town on the western slopes of the Rockies in Colorado, and that was Hicksville, man. When we drove in, it looked like most of the houses could use a new cone of paint or a new, I mean, a new everything, or maybe just a bulldozer and just start over. It was a lousy, rundown place. The day my cousin got married, we were out decorating his pickup truck, and of course he had a pickup truck because he lived in Hicksville. And some chickens came by, and then a couple goats came by. This was the kind of town where chickens and goats just kind of wandered through the streets. So we took one of the goats, and we tied it in the back of his pickup truck and threw some Oreos in there to keep it busy. So when he came out from his wedding, he got to see a goat in his pickup truck. Lancer weddings are exciting times, man. (laughs) But that kind of village, that kind of place, 
That's what a city without walls is like. That's an unwalled village. And so at the beginning of Zechariah's vision, it says Jerusalem is going to be an unwalled village. In other words, Jerusalem, God's holy city, is going to be rebuilt and it's going to be Hicksville, a backwoods little village that gets no respect. That's what we're talking about for Jerusalem now. And even beyond the question of prestige, in the ancient world, walls were a city's only real defense. Without walls, you were always vulnerable. If your city didn't have walls, you were never, ever really safe. A city without walls had no protection to speak of. And the real concern, the very bottom foundational fear that God's people would have had, if Jerusalem is going to be an unwalled village, does that mean God has finally forsaken his people? If God wants Jerusalem to just be an insignificant, insecure little town, does that mean that God has finally gotten fed up and left forever? Has God stopped loving his people? So if Zechariah's vision ended there partway through verse 4, the people would have been left without any hope for prosperity, for protection, or for God's presence. And that would have been a terrible, terrible place to be. But the vision doesn't stop there. Zechariah goes on, and this vision becomes a picture of assurance and hope. The problem is not that the people are building a city when they shouldn't be. They have God's blessing for that. The problem is that their vision is too small. The problem is not that God is opposed to their building project. The problem is that they want to make a nice little place for themselves, and God wants to build a world-class city. The Lord intends to bless his people with prosperity. He's going to protect them, and he's going to be there with him. In verse 4, it says that Jerusalem will be a city without walls because, because of the great number of people and animals who will live within it. The city won't have walls because the walls wouldn't be able to hold all the people and all the wealth that would come flocking into God's holy city. It's a total reversal of that unwalled village imagery. Here, walls would be counterproductive because they would limit the growth of this renewed Jerusalem. Periodically, there's building booms in some areas where builders just can't keep up. When I was in high school, Denver had one of those booms, and especially in some of the suburban areas, houses were just going up like crazy. Builders were hiring every single craftsman they could get a hold of and throwing them out there. There were all kinds of new housing companies started, and people still couldn't keep up. If you wanted a house in one of those areas, you could go to a builder, and he'd say, well, yeah, we'd love to do that for you. Maybe 30, 40 months out, we can get something going for you. So many people wanted to build there that it was years before you could even get a builder to start on the foundation. It was a crazy time. The city was overflowing its boundaries. Everybody wanted to be there. Life was good. And through this vision, God is communicating to his people that Jerusalem is going to be a city like that. It's going to grow and prosper beyond what they can imagine. And what's more, it would be a city that God himself would keep safe. The people don't need a wall because God himself will be their wall. And this won't be a wall of stone and mortar. It's going to be a wall of burning fire. 
Now, most cities in the ancient world had walls of stone around them. They'd build them up pretty high, kind of the standard thing you'd picture. But there was one notable exception that was built just a couple decades before Zechariah's vision here. And that city was called Pesargade. And Pesargade was no little unwalled village. It was a royal city built by King Cyrus of the Persians. And it was designed to be the capital of a great empire. It had palace upon palace. It had gardens upon gardens. It had everything you need for a city of power. But it didn't have any walls. No walls at all. But what it did have was altars. All around the city and at different points inside of it, they built altars. Altars to the great fire god, to Ahura Mazda, the king, the the god of Persia. There was no walls, but that city still had powerful protection. It was a city built by the king of the Persians, probably the most powerful person in the whole world at that time. And it was a city built to have protection from Ahura Mazda, from the greatest of the Persian gods, the greatest king and the, and the god of the greatest empire in the world were protecting that city without walls. And that city was built just a few decades before this vision that Zechariah had. So when Zechariah 2 talks about a city without walls, a city with a wall of fire, it's talking about a royal city, a city of human and divine power beyond what you could believe. So no one had better attack that city. No one had better attack Jerusalem, this text says, or God will wipe them out. Those who attack God's people will be punished, says the Lord. God will make his city great. God will protect it. And God himself will live in that city and be its great glory. And this is the greatest good news of all. For the people who wondered whether God loved them anymore, for the people who'd been beaten up and taken off into exile and had just now returned, this was the best news they could have asked for. God is coming back. God will be present with his people in the promised land. Everything is going to be made right. All is going to be well. The Lord is coming. He's going to bring back the good old days. He's going to take care of the enemies of his people. He's going to be their God again. And that's why verse 10 tells the people of Zion to shout and be glad, to rejoice, because God is coming and the Lord is going to be with him. God promises prosperity, protection, and his presence to his people. And he fulfilled these promises that we read about in Zechariah 2. That vision came true. Even in Zechariah's time, Jerusalem did grow and prosper. It didn't get back to its great glory days, but it got to be a good, strong city again. For many years, the people prospered. They were protected. They lived with God. This vision literally, historically came true. So Zechariah's audience could have felt pretty good when they heard about this vision. But then the end of this section has a twist in it, and it's a twist that would have knocked the breath out of Zechariah's original audience. They would have been happy to celebrate God's provision for them. They would have been thrilled to have God's presence back. They would have been assured of his protection by his presence. They would have been really glad to hear that God was going to take vengeance on the nations. So far, this has all been comforting and encouraging, 
but suddenly things get messy. The Israelites had this vision of a city that was big enough for them to live in, powerful enough to keep them safe, and good enough for God to dwell in. But that's where their vision stopped. And some people today still want to take this vision and they want to keep it restricted to the literal geographic location of Jerusalem as if God was concerned just with the people of Israel. But when we read this text in the whole story of the Bible, we see a different picture. The ultimate fulfillment of this text is not the old Jerusalem and the temple building and all of that. That is not the promised Jerusalem. The physical city of Jerusalem is not ultimately what this vision is about. The place where God draws limitless people in. The place where God protects. The place where God dwells. That's not Jerusalem anymore. That's here. That's the church. After Jesus conquered death, he won the ultimate fight against all the forces of evil in the world, and then he sent his disciples out to all the world. In the book of Acts, we read about the apostles going out from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and everywhere they go, and they bring people to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That is the new Jerusalem. God's building project extends far beyond the city walls of Jerusalem to encompass all the nations of the world. That vision of prosperity and growth in Zechariah 2 is fulfilled here today and all around the world, wherever people gather to worship God. This vision promises great things to God's people But you can expect that Zechariah's audience would have had a hard time hearing that his grace was going to go out to the whole world. Verses 1 through 10 would have been great. But then we get to verses 11 through 13. And suddenly God is talking about bringing the nations in and he's going to make them into his own people. The enemy nations will be brought into Jerusalem and they'll become God's people too. Those nations God promises to protect his people against. God's going to bring them into Jerusalem. He's going to make them part of his people. Now you can imagine the response of Zechariah's audience here. Great, 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 all the way through verse 10. And then say, what? Those nations had wrecked Israel. Those nations that this text talks about, they destroyed Jerusalem. They had killed a lot of God's people. They had carried most of them off into exile. Those people, those nations, they were out of bounds. And yet the Lord wants to draw them in. And you can imagine what the people would have thought. You're going to bring our enemies from out there and you're going to bring them here? No, not going to happen. God can't do that. Do you know what those nations did to us? Do you know what they want to do to us now? No, God cannot do this thing. For the people of Zechariah's time, they wanted walls because they had to keep those dreadful, dangerous, terrible nations out there. But who is beyond the reach of God's grace? Who is beyond the reach of God's grace? Who doesn't belong in God's own kingdom? Well, what about someone who enthusiastically applauded the brutal murder of believers? 
What about someone who would spend all his time hunting out Christians so he could drag them in front of court and have them executed? What about someone who went from city to city trying to wipe out every Christian pocket that he could find? Would that person be beyond God's grace? Well, that was the Apostle Paul. If anyone in the first century deserved to be struck down by God, it was Paul. But instead, God brought Paul into his people. And God used Paul to bring the good news of his grace out to the nations, from Jerusalem to Judea to the ends of the earth. Who's beyond God's grace? Who doesn't belong in God's kingdom? Your unbelieving neighbor? Your obnoxious co-worker? The Muslim who lives down the block from you? The Jehovah's Witness who's knocking on your door? I met a man recently who was born in the Middle East as a Muslim. And as a child, he regularly got into fights with Christians. As a teenager, he'd go out and he'd get in fights again. He joined a Muslim militia. He got a gun. He learned how to use it. And he started thinking about how he could kill as many Christians as possible. He was in training to be a Muslim teacher. He was opposed to anything and anybody who didn't submit to Islam. Is that guy outside the boundaries of God's grace? Well, no, actually not. Through some chance encounters with the New Testament, through a miracle of grace, the Lord brought that guy in to be part of God's people, to live as a Christian believer. Who's beyond the reach of God's grace? Nobody. Nobody. The Lord Almighty welcomes people from all the nations of the world. Just like God's Old Testament people, we're tempted to limit how far God's grace will go. We want to put our own boundaries up. We want to keep ourselves safe. The walls of Jerusalem would have been really effective at keeping the nations out, but they also would have been effective at keeping the nations away from their only hope. We want to build up our own walls, but the Lord has a bigger vision than that. In God's vision, his kingdom, his church is a city without walls that keeps growing and growing and growing beyond our ability to comprehend, beyond our ability to predict. So many people from so many places have come and are coming into God's kingdom, into this city that cannot be measured. The one thing that can't come into that city is evil. The nations can come in, but they can't stay how they were before. They have to give up everything in order to enter God's city. If we want to be part of God's people, we need to lose everything in order to gain everything. If you're really going to belong to God, you have to give up everything else. If you're really going to come into that city without borders, you need to come through Jesus Christ. He is the only gate He's the only way in. All of the nations may come in, but they have to come through Jesus. And yet, and yet God continues to draw people in. People you wouldn't expect. People none of us would want to welcome into God's people. God's grace reaches so much farther than our sin, so much farther than the sins of the nations. So who have we given up on reaching out to? Who have we given up on reaching out to? 
Who have you put beyond the boundaries of God's grace? Who have we put outside the walls? And do you really think, do you really think even those people are past God's ability to work? Do you really think God is unable to bring in even the most hardened sinner? Do you really think there's anybody, anybody that Jesus can't save? God's city has no walls because God himself is in it and because God himself can bring in anyone. Anyone from the nations is welcome in God's people. Thomas Jefferson's house, Monticello, was never close to being finished in his lifetime. When he died in 1826, the house was a wreck and it kept declining for years and years. His vision could not get to reality. And finally, more than 100 years after his death, a foundation bought Monticello and they spent 30 years fixing it up and finishing it up. And finally, in 1954, almost 200 years after Jefferson started his little building project, that house was finished. Jefferson never could get it done on his own. He changed his plans all the time. His vision didn't really get to where it needed to go, and he couldn't execute it. And so it is with us when we try to measure things out for ourselves. Our vision is flawed. Our plans are too small. We cannot accomplish what we think we can. But God, God has a great building plan. From Zechariah's time to today, God has this vision of a city that he himself is building, that he himself provides for, that he himself protects, that he himself is present within forever. There is hope for all the nations of the world There is hope for anybody and everybody you have ever met. There is hope for you, for all of us. God draws us into his kingdom, and he welcomes there. God is joining all of his people together. He is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. He destroys barriers and dividing walls of hostility among people's He breaks down the walls that separate us from him, and he builds all people of every tongue, tribe, and nation into one building with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. And so Zechariah 2, Zechariah 2 comes to us and it invites us to lay down our measuring lines. It invites us to give up on our own plans. It invites us to stop building walls that keep people out and instead to look toward Jesus Christ, the great architect and the builder of our faith, and to marvel at what God is doing. God is building his city. He is drawing his people in from all the nations, and he is welcoming them into his eternal presence. Today, lay down your measuring line and marvel at the great city that God is building.